we need to talk about ideas, good ones and bad ones. We need to learn stuff about the world. We need an honest, intelligent, thought-provoking, and entertaining review of what the hell happened on this planet in the last seven days. We need to sit back and listen to the Iron Fist and the Velvet Glove. Welcome back, dear listener. This is episode 192 of the Iron Fist Velvet Glove podcast. It's the 5th of March, 2019. I am Trevor the Iron Fist. With me, as always, Scott the Velvet Glove. G'day, Trevor. G'day, Paul. G'day, listeners. And Paul the 12th Man. Greetings, Earthlings. (laughs) (laughs) Dear listener, maybe you've uh, only just discovered us recently. Maybe you tuned into our... um, Dying, Ass- yes, assisted dying, voluntary assisted dying uh, podcast last week, and you've decided to hang around and see what else we do. So this is going to be one of our normal episodes in the sense that there's three of us sitting around talking about news and politics and religion and ethics and the meaning of life and things going on in the world that you need to know or think about and our views and hopefully give you something uh, to take away, and if you're standing around a water cooler or a barbecue or you're at a dinner party and the conversation turns to something of current affairs, you have got some interesting little insightful input that you can steal from us and put forward and see what happens. So that's the aim of our podcast. And what we're going to do is start off with just uh, last week, what a crack of an episode. We got some really good feedback on we that. We did get some really good feedback on that, and it was a really good episode too. Mm. In fact, my boss, he... I. He asked me what I was doing tonight. I said, I'm going to record a podcast. He said, oh, what's it about? And I said, blah, 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 blah. And he said, um, he says, oh, really, how long does it go for? I said, well, generally about an hour and a half. It's supposed to be only an hour, but it does go on. And I said, last week in particular, because we did the Dying with Dignity thing. And he says, oh, I'll, I'll look that up. So, hmm. Hmm. And he was impressed or he hasn't said? He hasn't said yet. He hasn't no. listened to it yet. So. Right. Lots of people, some lovely comments that we got, which was good. Mm. And Phil, a great speaker. Thank you, Phil. And Craig, of course, was excellent as well. So that one will go down as one of the highlight episodes. And so a little bit of a follow-up from that. Uh, this was an, um, uh, an article I saw on the Dying with Dignity Facebook page, which made the point that the numbers in the parliament could be pretty close on this, and there's no guarantee of it getting up. So... The Queensland Parliament is made up of 48 Labor members, 38 LNP and seven others. So essentially 48 versus 45, potentially. Mm. So you only need two renegades uh, swapping sides and voting against it and it won't pass, potentially. Mm. So, of course, there might be LNP members who like the idea, but... They're um, reticent to support it mm, because of what happened with the abortion law. Yes. Mm. So with the abortion law debate, they were given a free conscience vote and some of them chose to exercise that and got wrapped over the knuckles for it. Well, they were. It was absolutely Mm. ridiculous that um, Deb Freckleton gave them the um, conscience vote and there were four of them. The only one I can remember was um, Tim Nichols who voted with his conscience and voted in support of decriminalisation of abortion. Now, the four of them had their have had their pre-selection openly judged and questioned by the party president. Mm. It made no sense whatsoever. So, um, so, and it's potentially a more difficult issue for some people. So uh, stay tuned on that one. And as Phil mentioned, it might run out of time and it might 
not be until the next parliament anyway, but we'll see. Mm. Mm. So so we can't assume all the Labor Party members would support Correct. it. Correct, yeah. No, that's right. Yeah, so with the abortion debate, uh, two Labor MPs decided against supporting the bill, uh, one of those choosing to abstain. So they didn't need help of the opposition anyway. But, yeah, so it could be close. So we'll mm. see. Um, gentlemen, have you lodged your letters yet? No, not yet. I have completed it, though. Right. So, um, I'm the same. I've done mine, but I haven't For the, uh, writing to the inquiry and saying I'm in favour of voluntary oh, assistance. No, I haven't done that yet, but I, mm. I must get around to it. Right. We're going to wrap over the knuckles if you don't. Okay. What's the deadline? Uh, 15th of April, I think. Okay. Somewhere, don't hold me to that unless it was the 14th, but somewhere around there. Mm-hmm. So anyway. Right. Uh, anything happening much in the world of Catholics over the last <laughs> week, gentlemen? It's been pretty quiet, hasn't it, all around? Did anyone mention Catholics in the, Catholics, in, in the Catholics. media or the news or whatever? Um. I've heard something about Catholics. Some guy, George Pell was convicted. Pell, that's yeah. yeah, George Pell convicted, yeah. So, of, of course, course, we knew about it, but, yes. you know, we didn't say anything. So that was a thing we were talking about uh, a month or two ago where we said there's been something big but we can't talk about it and, of course, everybody knew anybody. Anyway, so, mm. well, 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 George Pell, hey. Um, gentlemen, thoughts on what it means or your takeaways from all the discussions that have gone on? Anything that you want to get off your chest about? Okay, I'll start. Mm. I think he is probably guilty, but I'm just not convinced there was enough there to say beyond a shadow of a doubt that he was guilty. Mm. And even then beyond that, even then more than that, there's probably not enough there to get beyond a reasonable doubt. Mm-hmm. So I was very surprised that he was convicted. Now, the only thing that makes me think that we didn't know was we didn't hear anything from the victim who was also the only witness and that type of thing. So that is, you know, clearly his evidence was compelling because his evidence managed to convince a jury of 12 people in the guilt of George Pell. But I'm just not convinced there was enough there to get beyond a reasonable doubt. Mm. Yeah, I'm pretty much with with Scott on that. Do we know what the um, the verdict breakdown was from the jury? Yeah, it was 100 percent guilty. Uh, uh, well, either it has to be 12 nil or 11 one. Yeah, 11 one, but it was 12 nil. Right. Yeah, but we don't know. It was 12 nil. Oh, it was 12, wasn't it? I yeah. don't know, but... Okay. Look, the, uh, the Four Corners program on Monday night uh, dealt with the issue and I was talking to Scott on the way over and um, the police did seem to be pretty strongly persuaded that there was that was guilt or that, that something had happened. But, of course, we can't necessarily use that to judge the guilt of a person because the police have as we know, got it wrong sometimes. Mm. But um, uh, there were other extenuating stories. Uh, there was one of um, a, a guy who testified, well, didn't testify. He 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 spoke on the Four Gordons program about um, being uh, with Pell at a swimming pool when he was a teenager and he said, he said, look, Pell was playing with the boys in the pool and repeatedly, 
touching their genitals. He mm. said, uh, he said, look, you know, if, you know, if it happens once accidentally, you sort of mm. say, oh, well, that, that was an accident. But mm. he said, said, sorry. And no. there are two of them who said that. He said it was yeah. just repeated, de- quite deliberate behavior and, uh, it made him and the other mm. boys quite uncomfortable and, and Pell exposing himself to them in the change rooms and things yep. like that. And a, and a guy who verified that who yeah. wasn't a victim. So it's interesting, isn't it? When you listen to the Four Corners report and you hear the other incidents, mm. it confirms in your mind his your guilt. suspicions. It yes. does, doesn't it? Yeah. It does. And so first off you're thinking, well, you know, one – Choir boy's word against Pell and the other choir boy denied it happened and this was all 20 years ago mm. and is that all the evidence? Then surely there's probably some reasonable doubt. But then you hear all the other evidence about him fiddling kids in the swimming pool, mm. two witnesses there, and then another guy saying that he exposed himself in change rooms. Uh, of course, none of that's admissible in a court when it comes to um, criminal matters and that's Always been the case, but it it's up for discussion, isn't it? Where it is up for discussion, it's, it's relevant, but it's always been the case that you can't say it you exactly. Um, yeah, Would the, you can't talk about somebody's prior conviction, even if you had a prior conviction for um, for for doing something with a choir boy, you could not bring that forward in evidence in a criminal trial and say, "Well, he's done it before and he's done it again." It only becomes uh, known in sentencing. I seem to recall hearing the story about the swimming pool quite some time before the trial. So can we assume that the people on the jury may have also heard about it? Uh, uh, that that um, that came out. I, I think, think they get asked quite a while ago. Whether you know, I think they. Oh, do they? I think they. I think there's some interrogation of them as to whether they have any prior knowledge of the yeah. of the um, the mm. defendant. Yeah. Mm. So it's a tricky one. I mean, let's assume, for example, the worst happens, any. Wins an appeal. I mean, what, what, what? Goodness me! If that happens, where are we? Well, his career is his career. His career is stuffed anyway. He's I mean, finished. He's finished. I mean, the Catholics will probably just keep him on, but they're not going to. He's not going to be what? What do he call the prefect of the economy or whatever it was over there? Yeah, he was effectively the treasurer. I know he's effectively mm. the treasurer of the Vatican, mm. but it's. Um, I don't think that the Pope would let him continue in that role. No, he's already. He, he wouldn't come back into that. But no, but he he probably would just be a cardinal in everything in name only, and that's about it. You yeah, know, they'd just shuffle him off to the side and say, "Keep your head down." Basically, and, yeah. yeah. But, um, I mean, they'll put him into retirement. That's about it. That's yeah. about it. Well, he's getting all in years anyway. How old but, is he? But, but then there will be all the talk, you know, from the likes of Andrew Bolt and all the others, uh, Abbott and Howard, about how, you know, there's a vendetta against the Catholic Church and how well, it's about time, there's, there's, a witch, <laughs> there's, there's a witch hunt out there and, you know, it's unfair, this, this discrimination and we're all martyrs in the Catholic Church. You know, that, that, that will be the line. But... My take from all of it with Pell was I was kind of shocked at the level of interest in it to some extent because we just had a royal commission that came out and said the institution is riddled with this sort of stuff. Mm. If it was just Pell on his own, it'd be arguable. Really, the Pell case simply says one bad egg. Mm. But the but the royal commission said... It's just a nest of vipers in there. Yeah. That's, we've got an institutional problem, and it's far more 
important, the Royal Commission, but doesn't seem to have had the same airplay result as the Pell conviction, I don't know to my mind. That. Because people are saying, uh, you go into a ca- the average suburban Catholic church on a Sunday morning, it's uh, they're not full apparently. I mean, I don't I don't visit them as a as a habit. But um, when I was a kid, the Catholic churches were probably pretty full on a Sunday morning. Well, this is you know I had noticed there's a church not very far from me that is a Catholic church that's they got a Saturday morning mass, a Saturday evening mass, a Sunday morning mass, and a Sunday evening mass. Mm. They've killed the Saturday evening mass. Mm. I think numbers are falling away. Numbers are falling away. And on Sunday evening, you used to have people standing at the doors. You don't have that anymore. So hopefully people are finally getting it through their thick skull and not going to bother. Did did you watch Q&A? Yes. And your impressions? Uh, My impressions were that um, people are still holding on to their superstitions because that's what they want to do. And regardless of any rational evidence, people will still cling to their superstitions. And I refuse to call it faith. Mm-hmm. And and I hope you won't, you know, dignify it with the with by using that word. It's just plain well, superstition. Well, well, I think faith is not a moral character, so yeah. it's not. A, it's but you know, people keep parroting this word faith as mm-hmm. if it. Mm. As if it's something if it's a good thing. worthy, yeah. Mm. Mm. Um, but look, people will let's let's be realistic. People are not going to walk away from their superstitions just because of something like that. You know, I I was listening to Christina Keneally. She was doing her normal hand wringing that she's been doing for the last four years. Four years of yeah. the term of this podcast, dear listener. Yeah, yeah. Just, she she's been mm-hmm. wringing hands about her Catholic faith for years. Yes, yeah. but and she's you know, still a member. Yeah. Exactly. And that's the whole point. She's got to put up or shut up as far as I'm concerned. Yeah. So, you know, I'm really struggling with this. I find keeping my faith in God sometimes is a day-by-day proposition. And, um, you know, my it's all about how their, how their faith in the Catholic institution has been rocked. And there was a lady in the audience who also talked about how her faith had been rocked. And, you know, the cynical atheist here is a little bit, God, you're selfish. Like, like Christine you know, all you can talk about is how your faith has been rocked by this incident. Yeah. What about the people who have been abused. abused and the people who will be abused in the future if this institution continues the way it does? That's right. And I just found people a bit sort of self-centred in their, mm. in their response to it was about what it meant to their faith um, rather than thinking about effects on the wider world. But um, but you don't think that it's a case of, uh, despite all these um, exposés on religious institutions, people keep thinking, yeah, but that's the bad eggs, that's the bad eggs doing the bad stuff, and that essentially um, there's something out there and, and, and they won't let go. They, one of my friends expressed it as, as a need for hope, mm-hmm. you know, when people have have problems in their lives or their lives feel a bit empty, mm. they, re- they reach out for something that will offer them some sort of sucker, if that's the word. Mm. And um, religion is always r- there and ready to offer it. Mm. So my comment on a Facebook page was that um, I think it was on Hugh Harris as he said, what does this 
mean for Catholicism in Australia? And I said, nothing. Individuals come and go, but the institution will live on as strong as ever. Mm. Unfortunately, like a professional football team when a star player has been caught with his pants down, <laughs> Pell will be suspended or sacked <laughs> but replaced with a younger version. Mm. And in a week, everyone will forget about Pell. His replacement will appear on Q&A yep. and will lobby politicians for more school funding yep. and will get a seat on a religious freedom review panel, which will be convened again in 10 years. Nothing will change until the people who oppose religious privilege get together, cooperate on some long-term goals. The, the institution will just keep going. But when I say it's like, yeah, I'll get back to the football team analogy about something else later on. So um, uh, Howard Abbott and others gave character references. Any feelings on that? They're entitled to do that. And... You know, I was talking to Scott on the way over. My my son was was charged a few years ago at schoolies for um, touching a police officer on the shoulder. And um, the first thing I did was contact his high school, you know, the, the deputy principal at the high school, and ask for character references, which were forthcoming. And the magistrate took the time to read through them and uh, let my son off with a um, basically a good behaviour bond, <laughs> which was the least that he could have possibly... Uh, done. Mm. So I think I think people are entitled to ask for one, and people are entitled to give it. I tend to agree with Paul there. I think that um, you know it, it was. I understood what the National Secular Lobby were saying in their press release just recently about that. But uh, did they did they object to it? Did they? they did. Yeah. Really? To character yeah. references? Yeah, they did. Really? I didn't know that. Okay. I can find it if you wish. Yeah, okay. Um, hang on a second. Um, I didn't have a major problem with that. I, I thought to myself, very much like Paul was saying, he's entitled to ask for it and he's entitled to have someone give it to them. Yeah, it's a factor in sentencing. If you can say that somebody, uh, okay, they're guilty of that offence, but take into account other things that yeah. they've done. So, he, people, I mean, it's, yeah, I agree 100%. You as need obnoxious to have, as Pell is, he's mm, not Hitler. Mm. <laughs> so, <laughs> uh, so that's that. Frank Brennan, of course, he questioned the verdict um, and. He, as we know, supports the seal of the confessional. And I came across an article which, on the seal of the confessional, um, was a study done by a Dr. Marie Keenan, an Irish academic. And she basically interviewed and studied some clerical sex offenders. And uh, they disclosed um, their abuse in confession. And the confessional, it transpired, was their main place of respite and support from their emotional conflicts and loneliness. Uh, the conclusion was several of them explained to her how they used the confessional to cope with their abuse of children and thus to facilitate it. So the confessional actually helped them cleanse some guilt mm. and get on with things and then they just re-offended. So the confessional was... Uh, not only allowed perpetrators to continue, um, it, it actually encouraged further despicable but acts. Doesn't Christian th theology facilitate it anyway? I mean, the idea that doesn't matter what you do in, in, in your life on earth, mm. so long as you repent, confess your sins before you actually cark it, you still go to heaven. Yeah, but for Catholics to get... Uh, sort of absolution from a priest is considered important and they yeah. feel extra cleansed as a result. That's right. So, yeah. ready, so ready and raring to go, go again. We, we need to 
dismantle that theology. Mm. Scott, what were you looking up? Was it I was NSL? looking up the National Secular Lobby. Okay, if you find it, come back to it. I will, yeah. Still on Crazy Catholics, we in the past have talked about the consecrated virgin phenomena. <laughs> Dear listener. That's a good one, isn't it? This is awful. Yeah. Oh. So we've spoken about overseas examples of women who have decided that they are going to marry Jesus and dedicate their lives to Jesus as a consecrated virgin. And the idea is that they're not nuns, so they can still continue with their normal everyday life, but they're not going to get married and they're and they're married to Jesus mm. and they will remain virgins. Real, actual physical virgins? Well, I recall actually in one of our earlier episodes where there was a bit of dispute in the consecrated virgin community because some women who joined were not actual virgins. Oh, my goodness. Mm. They had been married, for example. So they decided to become reconstituted virgins. (laughs) Reconstituted virgins. That's exactly right. And some of the other virgins who were really virgins uh, were not happy that these other people could be admitted as consecrated virgins. Oh, that's right. Yeah, they arced up a bit. That's right, yes. So so anyway, dear listener, on this this topic of consecrated virgins, we've got um, got, uh, Zara Tai. Um, she didn't know what she was going to wear on her wedding day. Uh, she didn't wear white, but it wasn't a conventional ceremony. And there's an article there that goes on, and uh, um, she's Australian. And according to the article, how many Australian consecrated virgins are there? Um, it's about eight or nine. Yes, in Australia. So, um, Are you surprised by the number? No, um, I'm not surprised. So somebody I quipped that one of them got drunk one night and there's only eight now or something. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Even oh, after I can't <laughs> get my head around it's it. Mind boggling. It, it is mind boggling that someone would continue to live a secular life mm. and give up sex and that sort of stuff to be married to Jesus. I can't understand why they don't become nuns. Yeah. Yeah. But well, but we, as we know, nuns oh, this, sometimes have sex. But this is a modern... Usually with priests. See, she describes this quote, it's a modern way. It gives a lot of freedom to do whatever you like to do. Really? So she still goes out and, and, and does all her other normal working life. See, she just didn't like the restriction of a, of nuns having to live in a nunnery and perform nun-like tasks. She wanted to be... You know, free to do whatever she wanted to, but but otherwise. But she is anyway, without yeah. becoming a consecrated virgin. Well, it's a commitment. Talk me. <laughs> yeah, she should anyway, be committed. Yeah. Uh, it, it says here. Uh, has she, she has she been psychologically assessed? <laughs> she, she's she's quoted here as saying um, that she's not embraced by all members of the clergy. She said some priests have said, "Oh, so you're a permanent single person." She says. <laughs> That's clearly not the case. I am married to Christ. They're still fitting me into a box that's not correct. They obviously don't know the history of the church. This was her complaint. So um, so there you go. Oh, we're lucky. We actually have some audio from the, um, from the ceremony. Excellent. Sit back and this is what was played at the end. Are you ready? Excuse me. Yes? Are you a virgin? I beg your pardon? Oh. 
If it's not a personal question, are you a virgin? If it's not a personal question, how much more personal can you get? Damn <laughs> piss off! It's quite a large crowd. Yeah. Absolutely. Mm. <laughs> yeah, that was from the actual ceremony, I mm, think. It was, it? yeah. Yeah, it was. Uh, in some good news, the ACT has banned school chaplains. Yes, that was excellent news, wasn't mm, it? Very heartening. Shows it can be done. Can be done. Absolutely. Dear listener, if you're thinking, what's wrong with school chaplains, yeah. they have to be from a religious um, group mm. in order to be a school chaplain. Yes. And the ACT has said, no, we're not taking the money from the government for that. And you guys who are chaplains... Um, See, at the moment, they're, they're employed by, like, Scripture Union and groups like that. Mm. And what happens, dear listener, is that the government pays Scripture Union something like $50 per hour for the chaplain, and Scripture Union pays the chaplain something like $14 an hour and yeah. pockets the rest for themselves. It's McDonald's wages, isn't mm. it, for chaplains? So the ACT has said, well, we'll employ chaplains um, as sort of counsellors, um, if they want to apply for the job, we'll employ them directly along with other people. So it gave them the option of still continuing their employment but directly employed by the education department, not through a contract through Scripture Union. And presumably paid an adult wage. Presumably, yes. Yep. Scott, you found the article. I did, yes. This is from Associate Professor Paul Willis. It is notable that two former Prime Ministers, John Howard and Tony Abbott, provided character references for Pell after the conclusion of his trial, showing complete disrespect for his victims and the rule of law in Australia. I can understand the disrespect for his victims. I don't know how they could have put that into their character references and that sort of stuff. However, they probably should have found a way. I don't understand the disrespect for the rule of law in Australia. I would have thought that it was showing some respect for the rule of law in Australia because, like we've mm. said, he's entitled to ask for character references. And, you know, a reference doesn't necessarily mean disrespect for the victim because it simply says, you know, I acknowledge the decision of the court, but when sentencing this man, take into account mm. these other things. So it doesn't mm. – it's, it's not meant to and it shouldn't include anything that says that the, that the, uh, no. that the decision was wrong. Okay. Um, Last week, when you were driving Phil over for the uh, for the podcast, he mentioned that the Human Rights Bill had just been passed in Queensland. Yeah. And that was a shock to all of us. It, it was. was a shock to us, yeah. I, I can vaguely remember three Didn't months ago. Coming, did you? No. It, like, we're obviously reading stuff all the time. We're, we're as diligent as you can be in terms of monitoring stuff of importance going on in Queensland and Australia. You even read the and, Brisbane Times. Exactly. And it just goes to show a Human Rights Act gets passed and there was zero uh, discussion in newspapers, media, social media. It just came through. So, so dear listener, in Queensland, we've got a Human Rights Act. Um, fortunately, it's not a full-on Bill of Rights. So I've yet to read the whole thing because um, – it's more of a recommendation type thing. So it's not like the courts can say, I find the law that you just passed to be in breach of a human right and therefore invalid. Uh, so it's more about making declaratory statements but not actually being able to change anything. So 
I think it's along the lines of a court looking at a at It's a, a kind of motherhood statement. Yes, isn't it? it is. But some pretty stupid motherhood statements. Like all I've read is the preamble and in clause two it says, well, the preamble says, in enacting this act, the Parliament of Queensland recognises, one, the inherent dignity and worth of all human beings. That's a motherhood statement. That's very much a motherhood mm. statement. Two, the equal and unalienable human rights of all human beings. Whatever they are. Well, here's the problem. Rights are not equal. No. Human rights are not equal. Your right to religious freedom ranks below my right not to be discriminated against. That's what I reckon. I mean, rights, this is the problem with the human rights that are listed, is they come into conflict with each other. So... It's nonsense to say the equal and inalienable human rights of all human beings yeah. when they necessarily come into conflict and have to be put into some sort There's of hierarchy. hierarchy. Isn't there? Exactly. Yeah. But here's the kicker, dear listener, in the preamble. Although human rights belong to all individuals, human rights have a special importance for the Aboriginal peoples and Torres Strait Islander peoples of Queensland as Australia's first people, with their distinctive and diverse spiritual, material and economic relationship with the lands, territories, waters, coastal seas and other resources with which they have a connection under Aboriginal tradition and alien, alien custom of particular special importance to Aboriginal people with their distinctive and diverse spiritual, material and economic relationship with the land. So they're a better class of human being than the rest of us are, are they? It's a racist statement to say that they, by virtue of their race, have characteristics that other people don't have because of their race. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's really... It, it is discriminatory, really yeah. inherently discriminatory, isn't it, that statement? It, it is. It, it's – look. So the equal and inalienable human rights of all human beings, except some are more equal and less inalienable. Dear, dear listener, if, if you're new to this podcast, we are more than happy for money to be thrown at poor, needy people, like double the budget of money spent, like yes. go for it but not because somebody has a particular racial profile, but because they're needy. Like that's, that's, that's the thing. That not, should be the only should, basis, yes, shouldn't it, it that should they be. need it. So uh, I'm going to quote a little bit from Ken and Malik. Good. Now, speaking of Ken and Malik, he's, he's coming, coming to Brisbane. To Brisbane. He's coming to Brisbane, yes. I yes. sent you the link, didn't you did. I? Yeah. Was sort Shall of we go? He's coming on the 1st of April. And you're going and in I'm booked in for knee, major knee surgery on the first of April. Shall we go, Scott? I will go. Yes. Good on you. Yeah. So, um, so we'll get was. Yeah. yeah. See and if Craig wants to come. Anybody yeah. else who's yeah. interested. So, anyone else who wants to come out and hang out with the twelve man in the velvet glove, you're welcome to. <laughs> Ken, Ken and Malik will be uh, would be good value, and um, I'd re I reached out to him sort of four months ago, saying, "I know you're coming to Australia. Would be would you be interested in doing a podcast?" And he said, "Well, if time permits, yes." Oh, really? Good. So I wrote to him and said that I've got problems on the 1st of April, can't see you, but if you're here on the day before, love to do a podcast. So hopefully he can. We'll oh, see what happens. Anyway, Ken and Malik, on this sort of topic of 
Aboriginal matters. And I sent that actual preamble to him and said, if you're looking for something local to talk about when you're here, check out the preamble and let people know your thoughts. And he has previously written about uh, his thoughts on the Aboriginal issue in Australia when he was here on his last visit. He said, equally troubling is the romanticisation. It has become the accepted truth that Indigenous peoples have a culture stretching back 65,000 years. Humans have been on the continent for that long, but no culture extends over such a time span. Today's Indigenous Australians no more have the same relationship to the spiritual tradition of dreamtime stories, as did those first inhabitants, than modern Greeks relate to the Iliad in the way their ancient forebears did. Good point. Very good point. Mm. He goes on. The idea of an unbroken, unchanged culture has a flip side that has always animated racists. It was once used to portray Indigenous Australians and other non-white races as primitive and incapable of development. Likewise, with another common claim that Indigenous people have a special attachment to the land and a unique form of ecological wisdom. Mm. This too draws on an old racist trope, a reworking of the noble savage myth. The fact that in contemporary debates such ideas are deployed in support rather than denial of Indigenous rights does not make them more palatable. Oh, thank you, Kenan, for those words. Indeed. It'll be very interesting to see what he says it's, about the it's preamble. It's like that book, Dark Emu, you right. know. It's, it's really an attempt to, uh, to, to, to paint uh, pre-contact Indigenous culture as some kind of, um, you know, nascent... Uh, developed complicated civilization. So, you know, so the preamble says that uh, Aboriginal peoples, uh, with their distinctive and diverse spiritual, material, and economic relationship, the lands, as if all Aboriginal people are the same. Exactly, yeah. And that as, their as, culture was unchanged over yeah, 60,000 yeah. years. I really like that example about the modern Greeks' sort yes. of feelings about the Iliad yeah. compared to an ancient Greek's feelings about it. Yeah. It's, it's a good point. So there are tens of thousands of Aboriginal people living in cities and, and with all due respect, their attachment to the lands and their spiritual connection mm. is... No it's different. It's to, no different to, to us. To, and look, or, it's or, or less than anyway. a white man living on a you know a cattle it's, station. It's or something. no. Exactly. It's mm. no different, really, to the feeling you or, or mm. any of us mm. get when we you know go camping, wake up early in the morning, mm. walk down onto the beach, mm. witness the sunrise, and just get that feeling of of awe at the beauty and splendor of nature. Yeah. It's exactly the same thing. But they will, as you say, romanticize it and try to build it into something more than it really is. Yeah, yes. good point, Paul. And it's just it's just belittling to say that Aboriginal people all think the same. They all have this yeah. noble, savage, spiritual relationship with the land. Yeah. But as um, as we know, uh, Indigenous people are often yeah. – Bullied by their so-called leaders into conforming to the, uh, you know, the newspeak, the indigenous newspeak. Yeah, right. Um, prior to the last episode, the Liberal Party had just been imploding. Yes, basically, the number of outrageous scandals that were coming out on the Liberal Party was extraordinary. Any one of them. Would have been enough to sink a government, yeah, and and they were just rattling them off like 
Yeah. Oh, what about a gunfire? Mm. <laughs> it was extraordinary, wasn't it? Just it was one extraordinary. after another. And, you know, it was – if you look at them individually, you know, apart from the $400 million to whatever the name of that company was. Paladin. Paladin, yeah. yeah. As opposed to the Reef – well, the, which also got four hundred million. Uh, yeah. So four hundred million was a, a popular figure for. Yeah, for, but that was twelve, eighteen months ago. So yeah. we've had time to adjust to it and yeah. that sort of stuff. But you know, if you look at that in isolation, but then you've got the whole Peter Reith thing over Hello World. Oh, not the Peter Reith, um, Matthias Corbin over mm. Hello World. Mm. You know, if you got all these in together, it just gives you the impression that the government is corrupt. Yeah, there's a great article from the uh, from the shovel. Uh, the heading was really good. Liberal Party asked to spread scandals out more evenly across the month. <laughs> Pointing out that it's hard to keep up with all of this outrageous shit when it's all happening at once, Australians have politely asked if the Liberal Party could aim for one scandal per week rather than bunching them all together into a single clusterfuck. <laughs> Do you think it's strategic, you know, that they... Get all your bad news out at overwhelm once. Overwhelm them. You, overwhelm you us well. with, uh, with scandal. Yep. And that we'll just sort of think, oh, scandal's not so special. It, yeah. You know, we, we get it all the time. <laughs> Voter spokesperson Lucy Gray said Australians had long ago given up on the idea of politicians acting honestly, but said a day or so between scandals would be nice. <laughs> <laughs> it's good, the shovel. Um, uh, let's see. Um, another voter said he felt like he was falling behind. I'm just catching up on Tim Wilson's misuse of parliamentary inquiry. That was eight scandals ago. <laughs> at, at least the Nationals keep their sex scandals to just one a month. <laughs> oh, yeah. oh, terrible. Terrible. And, you know, there was also Michaela Cash and some other character refusing to cooperate with, with federal, federal police. police yeah. Just mm. refusing to cooperate. Mm. And that was fine. Like... Even football teams have worked out that's not on. Like the Brisbane Broncos have a star um, uh, forward player who's, um, you know, six foot nine and 300 kilos and runs as fast as Usain Bolt. And they've suspended him for four matches because there was an incident where uh, he was not involved, but he was witness to an altercation on the sidelines that may have involved his family. And he refused to cooperate with the NRL investigative committee and so the Broncos said well we're suspending you for four weeks for not cooperating with the authorities and Michaela Cash and the other character do it and it's it's just accepted. Michaela's been missing in action for weeks hasn't she? Yeah did you see the Senate estimates uh, hearings they had the two federal coppers there and they asked that one woman, they said to her, you know, did you get what you were after? And she said it in a roundabout sort of way. She said, no, we didn't get what we were after. Mm. Yeah. So good article by Guy Rundle in Crikey where he talks about it and he said, um, there's now something more than anger attached to this government. There's a sort of disgust around. Disgust with them at the sheer volume of waste, shonk and grift. Disgust with ourselves for having let it go on for so long, for being the mugs who let it happen is once again of the paradox of Australian self-conception. We've imagined ourselves to be relatively uncorrupt and competently governed for so long uh, that a keenest sense that government had entirely collapsed into cronyism, clientelism and dirty tricks was lacking. Um, 
it's a rotten government, this one. It's just so disheartening. And, it is, And the yeah. sooner they're gone... It's falling into a stinking heap, isn't it? Even if you are a Liberal Party supporter, you would be wanting this mob to lose and hopefully have a bit of a clean-out. Yeah. The well, problem is, is... Yes. Scott. The, the alternative. <laughs> the well, problem the, of the, the clean-out the, the, the is... The problem of the clean-out is that you're probably going to be left with the hard right mm. without Dutton because Dutton will probably lose his seat too. Unless, of course, he manages to move to Moncrief down on the Gold Coast with Steve Chobo bowing out, which is a possibility. Because that was something that he actually talked about doing some time ago, but he decided against it or was convinced not to do it, and then Chobo took the position. Well, he probably has a holiday house on the Gold Coast. Well, one would have thought so. Anyway, um, (laughs) so you're probably going to be left with the whole likes of well, they they did mention Tony Abbott would survive. I'm still not convinced of that. This is an article from Andrew Bolt that we it were is. referring to. Oh, okay, yep. well, yep. okay. Andrew Bolt, who's got a, he's realised which side his bread's buttered on. Mm. But uh, excuse me. <clears throat> Sorry. Well, um, what we've had in the last few, you know, well over time is this, is according to Andrew Bolt, um, his first line: Malcolm Turnbull gone. Julie Bishop and Kelly O'Dwyer going, and now Christopher Pine too. Know what some pet liberals call that? A good start. Yeah. Well, he's just named all the moderates mm. that have gone, and that's Andrew Bolt saying that's a good start. So I don't think it's a good start at all. Mm. Sorry. He Kelly, said some conservatives are quitting, so Michael Keenan and Steve Chobo, but he basically makes the point that if, as expected, the uh, – government loses the next election, then when you're looking at the individual electorates and seats, it's mostly the progressives who are going to lose their seats and the hard right characters are thinking of... Um, Abetz. Abetz, yep. Kevin Andrews. Kevin Andrews, uh, Connie, Feveriavati-Wells. Feveria Wells. Yep. yep. Um, so... Uh, are the sorts of types that are going to keep going. So, uh, well, Erica Betts and Conchetti Ferravanti Wells are both senators, mm-hmm. so they're not going to lose their positions. Yeah, okay. but and they're high up on the on the, on the electorate ticket. ticket yeah. So, so anyway, dear listener, what that means is, you know, of course, the this conservative right wing of the Liberal Party is extremely strong and makes sure that it mem- its members get the safe seats and. You know, they give the marginal seats to the progressives and the few women who might percolate their way up to the top, but the really safe ones are, for the most part, held by ultra-conservatives. Yeah, they're ultra-conservative men. Mm. So if there's a, a cleaning out of the Liberal Party after the election, it's actually going to be a cleaning out of the progressive side, and the, and the, 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 the remaining part is going to be a nasty, hard, right-wing conservative. So, so the broad like, church will become an ever-narrowing church. Mm. It will be. And this is the whole point. Until they realise that there's no votes down that road, they're going to be out on their ass for a generation. They won't realise it. Well, they're just going to be a permanent opposition then. That's what's what, that's what's going to happen for a long time. Yeah, Absolutely. Mm. If you want to do something about it, if you love the Liberal Party and you like the idea of... Um, you know, neoliberal economics and uh, laissez-faire approach to things. The Libs have only 50,000 members. 
there are 150 House of Representative seats. So that means there's an average of 333 members per seat. So if you can get 166 friends, you could win yourself a pre-selection. <laughs> That's not many. It's not now, many. Of course, in the seats where they're likely to win, there's going to be more members. And in seats where they're never going to win, there's hardly any. So it is skewed, yes. of course. But on average, if you just work on the, on the averages, you only need 166 people to win a pre-selection. It's not many. That's why the Mormons can pull these things off. Yeah. Absolutely. Mm. Yeah. And they're, they're, they're all part of the problem because they are taking over the party, they're mm. lurching it too far to the right, and they're going to be sitting on the opposition benches for a long time. Mm. I right. think you could be seeing Bill Shorten being the next Bob Hawke. He could oh. be around for a several for several terms. Wow. Mm. Well, it could be. Mm. Um, just, just excuse me, I've got to buy my own. Yeah. Right, dear listener, Scott's blowing his nose. <laughs> He's recharged our our beers and we're we're back into the swing of things. Uh, a late uh, piece of news that came through, I didn't even have it on the list, but Ida Butros, um, uh, now the chair, is chair, right? chairwoman mm, chair. of the ABC. Mm. Of the board, yeah. And seems to be the first good decision that Scott Morrison, Morrison has, has ever made. made. Yeah. The yeah. only one that he's ever made. He did go against the uh, whole process because mm. the process said you had to go out and find blah, 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 blah. Mm. Apparently, they came back with men. So he said, no, I'm not going to go with that. And he went with Ida Butros. Mm. Now, where it's a good decision is that Ida has already put them on notice and said, I love the ABC. If there'll be no political interference under my watch, mm. if you ca- and she'll speak up if she feels it needs more money. Mm. He spoke very uh, glowingly of her. I mean, he really trusts her. Re- I mean, really trusts her. He was. I've got a bit of a clip of the Everybody audio. Trusts I've her. got a bit of a clip of the audio from the press conference, and he uh, he really trusts her. And he was so moved, he pulled out a guitar and just started with this. Yes. I bought that when I was in my um, younger years, Mm. when it was uh, released on vinyl, that Mm. that album. It was a good album. Great album, Mm. yeah. So so he, you know, believes her clearly, and why wouldn't you? But I suspect there's something even more to it because – You're a very suspicious person. I am. Well, I had a bit more from the press conference as well, and I'm saying to Mrs. Morrison, just watch out because (laughs) – because when when the he didn't think the he didn't think the microphone was still on, but this was this was also happened. I don't like his chances, frankly. <laughs> oh, dear oh, listener, dear listener, if you're too young to know Cole Chisel, uh, they actually wrote a song about Ida Butros yeah, all those did. years ago. So that that is a song about the same Ida that we're speaking album. about now. By so the album it was a good album. It's a pretty good resume she's got. I mean. You know, oh, in charge of the, um, you know, Women's Day and dealing with Kerry Packer and mm. she had, you know, Cole she Chisel a, write a song about her and now indeed. she's chair of the ABC. That's a, a life well lived, Ida. She's iconic. Yeah, she she really is, is indeed. So it'll be interesting to see uh, how she goes. Yes. Mm. Right. Uh, we had a bit of an argument, a disagreement, I think, about uh, Shamima, Shamima Begum. Did we have a disagreement where we were talking Did about? Did we disagree? We I were talking think... about whether you could expel yeah, citizens okay. into another country. Yeah. And um, 
I yeah. said at the time that I believe she was born in the United Kingdom, therefore mm. she's the UK's problem. Mm. Now, the Tell UK, people what's happened. Okay, what's happened is that she has been, the Home Office has cancelled her citizenship. She was found in a refugee camp in Syria, in northern Syria, uh, being looked after by the Kurds. She was an Islamic State bride who mm. went over there to marry a fighter. Presumably the fighter has long since expired. and I think she's lost several. <laughs> okay, fair enough. Yeah. She's married off a few times, wasn't right. she? Anyway. Um, Seriously. Bit of a black widow, perhaps. Oh, apparently so. Mm. But, um, yeah, she has expressed an opinion that she wishes to return to the United Kingdom. Mm. And the Home Office has cancelled her passport, so she can't get back into the UK now. Yes. Normally, you couldn't cancel somebody's passport if it would leave them stateless. Exactly. And the Home Office has said that both of her parents are Bangladeshi, and therefore she's automatically entitled to Bangladesh citizenship. Therefore, she is not stateless. Yeah. So if she was... Um, fifth generation um, British, they couldn't do it because she wouldn't have automatic citizenship in some other country. But because she's first generation, born in the UK, but with Bangladeshi parents, they're saying, well, she's got automatic entitlement to citizenship in Bangladesh. The Bangladeshi government has uh, disputed that. They they have, and you know, various lawyers are disputing it. But uh, Majid Nawaz, who's quite famous for his sort of um, views on Islam, is a reformed sort his of Quilliam organisation. Yes, yes. yes, has basically come out and said, "What an outrageous law! What an outrageous approach! Because you're treating uh, a British person with." A British-born person with foreign parents, foreign-born parents, as a second-class citizen mm. because they're up for deportation or failure to readmit back, whereas somebody who's fifth generation is not. So I think it's a, a different. Point. It's a very good point. Mm. Absolutely, it is. Mm. It's a very good point. Not only that, but uh, I think they 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 need to consider the situation of the Kurds now. The, mm. You know, the Kurds are put up with a lot and taken a lot of losses at the hands of IS and uh, they, they're not, you know, they're not rich enough. They don't have the luxury of um, taking care of other countries' refuse, mm. hu- human refuse or otherwise. Mm. So the British, I think it's incumbent on the British government to take her back and deal with her. Mm. I agree. Uh, Absolutely. And that might mean, you know, incarcerating her or whatever, but... Uh, well, mm. this is my from my friend in the UK that I was emailing, well, emailing on Facebook. She said she definitely deserves to face charges here and perhaps if we, ha- if we have her in detention, we can learn how a 15-year-old British, British citizen was radicalised. The baby should be taken away from her too. And I said, yes, I agree with you. The child should be taken away from her and adopted out to same-sex atheist couple. But, you know. <laughs> mm. Same-sex atheist couple. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, that's an interesting conundrum. And I think when Scott Morrison was in New Zealand, the New Zealand Prime Minister was saying, hey, you know how you're sending 
people back to New Zealand who've never really lived in New Zealand, uh, stop it. So we're going to grow up. Yeah, that is a little bit brutal, Mm. you know. And You can understand if they migrated as adults to Australia. And they've been here for only two years. But but just came here over the age Mm. of 18 as adults, um, you know, we would expect them to behave uh, according to Australian law, and then if they decided they were going to break Australian law, fair enough. Yeah, tell them to go home. But these people that arrived when they're in their mother's arms, mm. I think we've got to keep them yeah. here. Correct. I mean, we're happy to adopt, you know, Russell Crowe and other Kiwis as Australians when it suits us. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, two-edged sword. Right. Remember, I was at a twenty-first birthday, and I was speaking to the young people there. You were holding court. I was holding court, oh. and I was saying, "Guys, how long are you going to let the baby boomers screw you over for? Like, and just you know, superannuation, uh, high price of housing, um, the whole sort of deductibility and of of rental, and uh, and what was the other major? You know, all my normal arguments I was running at the time, and trying to rile them up and get them interested in objecting to it and they're kind of a bit lukewarm in their response and the other day i was at a different function which was a lady's retirement function uh she'd finished work and uh had a last day of official work and i um a bunch of us there to congratulate her on a career well done and of course that was full of baby boomers so i (laughs) so i was once again well, I was attempting to hold court and uh, say to the baby boomers, you bastards, you've, you've just screwed these younger generations. You've taken everything for yourselves and now, um, you know, whipping up the ladder so that the younger generation can't benefit from the same things that you benefited from. And I got a pretty hostile response. Well, hostile, friendly hostile, if it's possible. Animated and motivated and what the hell are you talking about, Trevor? We've worked for our stuff and no way can you take this away and, you know. Did Mrs Fist have to remove any cutlery from your back? No, she didn't. Um, but uh, other people there were looking at a table because we were getting quite animated. It was good fun, actually. It was, it was good fun. <laughs> but my whole uh, takeaway from it was that the young people were just like, yeah, um, yeah that sounds right, Trevor, yeah. Whereas... The older generation were like bloody hell over my cold dead body. Will yeah. you be allowed to do that? And dear listener, I am reminded of Machiavelli, who uh, Niccolo, Niccolo Machiavelli wrote originally in 1515 that there is nothing more difficult to plan, more doubtful of success, nor more dangerous to manage than a new system, for the initiator has the enmity of all who would profit by the preservation of the old institution and merely lukewarm defenders in those who gain by the new ones. And so I, he's I, deservedly a famous guy. He it? is. It's a good point. It's, it's the people who could concretely say, I'm not going to lose this stuff, were far more motivated than the ones who were told, well, you might get some benefits out of this. Do you think it's also a hangover from, you know, that generation where out on the street stopping Vietnam and all that sort of thing? Oh, no. No. I don't think so. But yeah. I might be wrong. Yeah. Um, it's just um, I would have thought that because this generation hasn't, you know, we've gone through 28 years or something like that of continuous economic growth. We've not had the problems and that sort of stuff that they've had overseas. We've never had a need for them to be out on the street. 
And as a result, I just don't think they're motivated enough to get out there on the street. Now, I personally mm. think they should be out on the street. I would love to attend the rally in support of winding back the whole excesses to that older generation. Mm. Yeah, well. Really, I'm looking at you too, Paul. So, mm. so, <laughs> so it, it was interesting, the difference in response. So, um, okay, I might skip the one about the, well, we had the thing about the financial inquiry with mortgage brokers and it seemed like mortgage brokers were going to be well and truly out knocked business. out of the park, out yeah. of the business because they were basically saying um, they were getting money for nothing. And uh, the result seemed to be that even more power would go to the banks um, if you took it away from mortgage brokers, it meant that more power would go to the banks. But the the mortgage brokers uh, lobbied hard and in that sort of Machiavellian spirit of protecting a system that was in their sort of to their advantage. Damn, mm. I didn't buy shares of yeah. mortgage choice when I had the opportunity. Yeah. And they've bounced back and then the government said, oh, actually, maybe your mortgage brokers might uh, – if you're going to lose your trailing commission, maybe we'll just let you double your upfront commission. So the mortgage brokers <laughs> might come out of this really, really well. And they'll probably keep the trailing commission as well. Yeah. They? So, um, you know, they could well get the lobby group of the year award, mm. uh, the mortgage broking group. So we'll see what happens there. Mm. Um, the use, share price tumbled, didn't it? Yeah. Mortgage choice. Interesting to see if it's, if it's come back up. Now, I think one of you guys sent me something about a short film documentary about Australian Muslim history. Talk Paul said that. Yeah. Well, tell me about it. I just came across it by chance and I don't know much about it, but it's apparently an attempt by a Muslim, uh, you know, activist organisation to, to somehow link Islam with pre-settlement Indigenous culture in Australia. It's bizarre, but that's what they're apparently on about. Yeah. Are you going to go along? I uh, don't think so. Right. Are you? Are you interested? No, I'm not interested in, in Muslim history in Australia prior to 1770. It's concocted, let's face it. Mm. It's concocted. It, had couldn't, to it couldn't be that extensive, it, could it? It, it? it had to have been concocted because, I, don't, I mean, the Muslims had spread what as far as Indonesia by then, hadn't they? Uh, yes. Well, I don't. I don't. I'm not familiar with exactly when they arrived. If, in the if you see the movie, you can be familiar. Yeah. Yeah, but you know the fact that a few Indonesian, uh, what you know, sailors landed on the north coast of Australia—that's pretty well established. But you know, is that Islam arriving in Australia? I don't think so. That was just a bunch of guys on boats, yep. uh, sailing around looking for produce. You know, maybe they converted a few Aboriginal tribes along the way. Yeah, really, I think that might be the gist of the film. I reckon they would have had some real language barriers. Mm. Well, yeah, you'd think. Mm. Skipping a couple of uh, topics here, guys, and moving on to dear listener, here's a quiz for you, boys. Don't interrupt with the answer. But um, <laughs> if I was to say to you, I want you to guess uh, which countries' companies were the biggest buyers of Australian farmland in 2017, 2018. So, companies from which country were the biggest buyers of Australian farmland? 2017, 2018, and you, know, you might be thinking 
China, you might be thinking America. I would have assumed the United States, the United Kingdom, Germany, France, New Zealand, whatever, but it isn't. No, the answer, dear listener, is the Bahamas who bought – so companies from the Bahamas bought 2 million hectares in a single year of Australian farmland. And we know what that means, don't we? The companies from the Bahamas are not really Bahaman natives. Of course not. These are tax dodgers who have been allowed to buy assets and who in knows, Australia. who knows where they, they come from? Exactly. They're like, from all over the world, dirty money from the whole globe. Indeed. To put this in perspective, Bahamas companies last year bought an area the size of Israel. The Bahamas is now the fifth largest owner of Australian agricultural land. It's not because there's a special relationship between our farms and theirs, but because investing through a tax haven mm. is the economic equivalent of donning a wig and fake glasses. <laughs> how do we, how does our government allow this to happen? Surely we just. Because they don't a, care, Trevor. They don't care, that bastards. They really don't. Please, somebody care. They think any investment is good investment. I have I have failed to understand how foreign investment in land is good investment because it doesn't actually result in anything. It just results in a transfer of ownership of land and that type of thing. Hmm. It's not as if they're going to bring in brand new equipment and that sort of stuff to do anything. They just well, presumably they might improve the land in some fashion. How? Oh, by by upgrading infrastructure, equipment, etc. You know, in an agricultural enterprise. Yeah, but you know, buy buy new harvesters or whatever. Yeah, but you can still buy new harvesters if you're an Australian farmer. If you got the money, and that's the whole point, isn't it? You would think it's in our national interest to maintain control Wouldn't of our farmland. Well, I would have thought so, but certainly to just allow. <coughs> Um, the tax from dodges the Bahamas. Bahamas you shouldn't yeah. be able to buy anything. If, you, if your company is based in the Bahamas or any of those dodgy places, you just shouldn't be able to buy anything. Yeah. So uh, skipping a few articles again is um, a woman who inherited a fatal illness wants to sue doctors in a groundbreaking case. So in 2010, the woman gave birth to a daughter Four months later, she learned her father had Huntington's disease. She was subsequently diagnosed as also having the disease. She's had to cope with the impact and the knowledge that her daughter has a 50% chance of succumbing to us to it. So the woman decided to sue St George's Healthcare NHS Trust, who she believed should have told her that she was at risk. Her lawyers claim the trust doctors had a duty of care to share the father's diagnosis with her, even against his wishes. However, when the case went to the High Court, concern was raised that allowing it to proceed could undermine the doctor-patient relationship. Um, so the woman's claim was struck out. But that's interesting. The doctors know that this guy's got Huntington's, therefore his children have a 50% chance, and she's saying, well, you should have made efforts to tell me that I've got a 50% chance. What about people of a um, <laughs> documented low IQ who have children? Should they 
be warned that the kids could also be idiots? Uh, well, <laughs> I think you're going a bit far there. <laughs> I yeah, that's a yeah. I, I'd always thought that you should err on the side of doctor-patient privilege, that sort of thing. But the way you've just put it out there, Trevor, that is a very good point. I'm not sure how I feel about that anymore. Yeah, I have to take that on advice. Mm. It's a bit of a conundrum that one. It is normally yeah. it should be private, but yeah. But in disclosing the information to the other person, you're obviously going to be providing details of what would otherwise be private. Hmm. Couldn't they have done a, a DNA test on her to find out if she was going to... Yeah, then she could have had a DNA test and found out or had some other test to see if she actually had it. So, exactly. But she wasn't able to because she had no idea. So, yeah, uh, it makes me think that they should have mandatory DNA testing you know, for the, people. The law says that there was no no relationship between the doctor and the daughter. So anyway, as a matter of public policy down the track, that might be one where people should be told if there's some serious genetic problem in the family, people maybe have a right to know once it's diagnosed in the family. Hmm. That's a good point. Yeah, good point. So that was an, a case, a legal case. Here's another one of an Indian man. <laughs> this was ridiculous, wasn't it? He's <laughs> suing his parents for giving birth to him. Uh, he believes he should be paid to live because it was not his choice to be born. Mm. His mother said she would not have had Mr Samuel had she have met him before he was born. He identifies as an antinatalist, a philosophy that assigns a negative value to birth. Dear listener, if you're one of those Jordan Peterson fans out there, <laughs> he's one of those types as well because he talks about the eternal suffering of life and how if you listen to him in a Sam Harris interview, he runs a line that, you know, maybe it would be better if people weren't born because there's so much suffering in life. That's the sort of twaddle that Jordan Peterson comes out with. So mm. he'd probably have a lot of sympathy for the argument that this Indian guy has has made. So... Anyway, the, uh, the mother expanded on her thoughts on her son's Facebook page. If Raphael could come up with a rational explanation as to how we could have sought his consent to be born, I will accept my fault. Exactly, said. yeah. Uh, there's a problem in that family. Oh, you know, it's just the guy's got a chip on his shoulder that he was born. That's all he's trying. No, I don't even think he's, he's got a chip a on his shoulder. Sod. Exactly. Yeah, he doesn't want to work. Lazy sod, he doesn't want to work. Yeah. yeah. So he wants someone else to support yeah. him. Yeah. You didn't ask me for permission. Now I'm here. You're gonna, you've got to support me for the rest yeah. of my life. Mm. Yeah. Uh, they'd probably wish they could put him back in the, <laughs> in the box <laughs> as well, you know, after, <laughs> after meeting him and finding out what sort of person he is. Mm. Still on Crazy Indians, we've got a vigilante cow protection groups have reportedly killed at least 44 people in the past four years mm. uh, on suspicion that they've slaughtered cattle. They're out of control. 44 people killed uh, as part of a cow protection group. It's superstitious nonsense all over again, isn't mm. it? Well, you know, if you, if you travel to India... Or Nepal, as I did, you'll see people lying on on major roads, uh, you know, literally mm. lying on the road with everybody mm. driving around them. Um, but 
if if you hit one of them, I don't know if you, if they'd send you to jail because the idiot was lying on the road deliberately. If you hit a cow, you can go to jail. You know. Yeah. In Nepal as well, they have mm-hmm. laws against this. You know, you can definitely be uh, suffer the consequences if you accidentally hit a cow and kill it with your car. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So is Nepal a Hindu country too? Is it? It's largely Hindu. Yeah. It's about. Okay. I think it's about ninety percent Hindu, something like that. Even though we think of it as a Buddhist country, it's it's really mm. largely Hindu. A cow vigilante group just made me think of the old song, Cows with Guns. <laughs> have you ever heard that song? Possibly. Do you have it? Fat and docile, big and dumb. They look so stupid, they aren't much fun. Cows aren't fun They eat to grow, grow to die Die to be et at the hamburger fry Cows well done Nobody thunk it, nobody knew No one imagined the great cow guru Cows are one he hid in the forest, read books with great zeal. He loved Che Guevara, a revolutionary veal. <laughs> Cow say tongue. Love that line. <laughs> he spoke about justice, but nobody stirred. He felt like an outcast, alone in the herd. Cow doll drums. He moved, we must fight, escape or we'll die. Cows gathered around, because the stakes were so high. Cow pun. Okay, that's enough. I, that I, might, a bad I, I, I might put some at the end of that. So, great song, Cows with Guns, if you hadn't heard it before. So, um, uh, right. Um, beer report, Scott. How are we going? Beer report. Okay. Tonight, we have drunk the Newstead, the last of the Newstead Brewing Company stuff. I had an apple cider. Trevor drank a golden lager. And, Paul, you had a... The purple one. The purple one, which is what? Which is... Can't get it out of the stubby hole. Okay, that was from Adam anyway. Thank you very much, Adam. Thanks, Adam. And we have finished off the uh, little creatures from Dave. So we are now in the outlook for a new beer sponsor. Although we did have something that sent through from us to from Landon, but we have to wait until he actually gets off, he gets off his backside and puts in another message for us to say that uh, we're able to announce that. Right. Uh, we've got a... Uh, Session ale. Newstead Brewing with yes. a, a picture of the old, uh, ga- is it the old gas? Gasometer? Uh, yeah. The, you know, the the big framework yeah. that used to hold the gas tank. Yeah. 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 Anyway, thank you very much to our beer sponsors, which was from the beginning, was Wayno, Landon, Bronwyn, Dave and Adam. Thank you very much. And thank you to our patrons, Sean Janelle, Craig, John, Landon, Wayno, Ayame, Alison, Steve, Tony, Caitlin, Watley, Jimmy Spud, Kane, Roman, Matt J, Robert, Rod Pallet, Matic Man, Dominic, Liam, Dave, Karen, Daniel, Harry, Gavin, Peter, Captain Doomsday, and Aiden, and the non-patrons who are paying via PayPal. Dean, Ken was the beneficiary, and uh, David, and who's just come on board recently. And guys, that may sound like a lot of patrons, but actually, when I add up all of our subscriptions, which is the website, the MP3 hosting, The Guardian, Crikey, Medium, uh, The Australian, Sydney Morning Herald, Courier Mail, Sunday Paper, 
couple of software programs that I need, uh, there's not much left over. It's a small change at the end of the day. We're barely above water. So uh, believe me, it's not a profit-making enterprise. So uh, chip in and help out. It would be appreciated. Uh, that would be good. So Thank you very much. We need to buy some shares in mortgage choice as well. So. Yeah, that's what we should do. <laughs> uh, we got some nice – we got a nice five-star review from Antifu. Uh, thank you for that which was Iron Fist and Velvet Gloves, a deep dive into secular discussion in Australia and some international sources. You won't always agree with them, but they will make you analyse your views and at the very least inform you of some of the undercurrents in political and religious spheres. Well worth your time. Thank you. Aidan sent us a night was this one as well. Thank you, Aidan. Uh, that interview I did with Eric when we were talking about primates and um, yeah. apes and the difference between us, I've got a link to a really good podcast that talks about that sort of issue. If you're interested in it, you'll find it in the show notes. Um, and the guy was basically saying that Homo sapiens is a domesticated form of our species, and that's the result of the invention of capital punishment. What? Hmm. The hell? Uh you're wondering, how could our low aggressiveness evolve from repeated acts of violence? And here, let me let me try and give it to you in a nutshell. I've got a link to the article. But um, when you talk about evolution, you could have like uh, super selfish, aggressive types in a group and you could have altruistic types in a group. Yeah. So... Within a group, you would expect the aggressive ones to win out and dominate and drive out the altruistic ones. So within groups, selfish attributes dominate and win out. But if you've got a group that is full of altruistic types, then that group as a group will perform better than a group that's full of selfish types. And... What he says in the article is that um, when human beings began to communicate through language and through abstract concepts, the, uh, the uh, alpha males, the selfish, uh, aggressive types, could no longer dominate the groups because three um, B-category males could get together and say, Let's just kill that guy because he's just – and the rest of the – and even the women in the group would say, can you guys please kill that guy because he's just the alpha male asshole that we don't need around here. Mm-hmm. So the um, uh, the ability of, of the lower class males to get together and kill the alpha is a unique uh, aspect of human development because think of another species that can actually do that. So then what you have is instead of this destructive sort of situation where uh, super aggressive alpha males are dominating the altruistic males, you then have an opportunity for altruistic behaviour to flourish and you've got groups of altruistic uh, beings who then perform exceedingly well as a group. Like insects. So, Like Termites or something like that. Well, uh, I don't know. But anyway, uh, I don't know that they practice capital punishment of alpha types. But 
So there you go. That's an interesting theory of evolution because there's a group theory of evolution, not just a individual theory that you need to take into account. And um, so makes sense that capital punishment actually led to less violence. What do you think? I have to think about that. I have to think about that too. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, uh, I really like the ideas in that. So if you're interested, then there's links to a podcast and links to an article and I've also ordered the book because I think it's um, really interesting. Mm. Um, how are we going for time? Oh, we better get through a couple more just brief. Uh, do we want to? It's going to be jumping all over the shop. Um, how do you guys feel? We stop there? Why not? Okay. I'm good. Yeah. Dear listener, thanks for tuning in. Um, we will be back next week with more news and current affairs. If you've got stuff you want us to cover or you find any interesting articles, send them to us. If you want to become a patron, go to the website. It's nice to get feedback. It was really nice last week to get some comments from people saying how much they enjoy the podcast. So that's good. Leave a five-star review and that's all appreciated as well. Until next time, uh, Scott, you look like you want to say something. No, you're um, good. I was just going to say that Jane, she left a very good positive feedback mm. for us on the website. So, yeah. Thanks, Jane. Yeah, go and read mm. that. Thank you very much, Jane. Mm. All righty. Until next time, bye. <clears throat> Thank you very much for tuning in. Bye now. See you, guys. Well, dear listener, did you enjoy that episode of the podcast? If you did, I've got a favour to ask. Uh, first up, tell some friends. Let them know about the podcast. You'll be discussing something at some time and you might be repeating something I've said. And when you're talking to your friends, say, hey, I heard this on this podcast and it's worth listening to. And maybe pick an episode that you think's a good one and direct them to it. Like grab their phone and go to their podcast app and search for Iron Fist Velvet Glove and subscribe <laughs> on their behalf on their phone and, uh, and just put the word out. The other thing is you could become a patron and support the show. So if you go to our website, you'll see a link to Patreon and there are some different options for subscribing and paying per episode. And really the amount that you pay depends on what you get from the podcast. So there's different levels ranging from $1.50 Australian to I think $10 and various ones in between. It's really, what do you think it's worth? Is it worth a cup of coffee? Uh, is it worth more than that, less than that? Whatever you get out of it, because not everybody gets the same. Maybe you don't listen to the whole thing. Maybe you never talk about it with people. Maybe you really couldn't care less half the time whether the podcast is there. It just, it'll be different for everybody. So if you get a lot out of the podcast, contribute a bit more. If you don't get much, contribute less. But in any event, you can subscribe there. If you don't like the idea of a regular subscription, the website has a link to a PayPal donation. So you could just do a one-off donation every now and again. So there you go. It'd be good to uh, spread the word, get a few more listeners. And that way, look, if we ended up getting more listeners and more money, we could do maybe a second episode or more special episodes, provide some more content. So it's up to you. If you think it's worthwhile, let people know. Thanks.